0: The Supreme Court dropped some major decisions this year. How will that affect the nation going forward? Hi, I'm Peyton Luke and this is First Liberty Live. First Liberty brought together national leaders to discuss the future of religious liberty. Stuart Shepard was there and able to gain some insight regarding some recent Supreme Court decisions. First, here's his conversation with the top attorney who argued the First Liberty case involving Coach Kennedy.
1: I want to introduce you to Paul Clement. He's a former U.S. Solicitor General and now is part of Clement and Murphy, a brand new law firm in Washington, D.C. He's argued more than 100 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, including recently one of ours, which was the case involving Coach Joe Kennedy, who liked praying at the 50-yard line. And now he gets to. Welcome,
2: Paul. Uh, It's great to be with you. Great to be with you.
1: Last time I was talking with you, we were standing out in front of the Supreme Court. You had just finished making that argument for Coach Kennedy. Now we have a victory, and you've had some time to reflect on what came out of that opinion. What do you see now that you've had some time to look at it, weigh it, and, and
2: establish the value of it? Well, it's an amazing opinion. I mean, obviously, the most important thing is that the coach won his case, and the coach gets to do what he loves to do, which is coach young men. And he gets to do it in a way that doesn't require him to sacrifice his religious beliefs. So that's the single most important thing about the case. But one of the things about taking your case all the way to the Supreme Court is not only do you get to win your case if you're so lucky, but the court writes an opinion that then becomes the law of the land for everybody in all 50 states. And the opinion that the court produced is a great opinion for religious liberty. It's a great opinion for students. It's a great opinion for teachers and coaches. Uh, It fully respects their First Amendment rights and makes clear that, you know, as the Supreme Court said a long time ago in one of Kelly's favorite cases, the Tinker case, uh, you know, students and teachers don't leave their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gates, and the court kind of reaffirmed that. And so teachers and coaches who want to engage in some religious exercise, religious practices during the school day, they are not being told, forget it, you got to leave your religion uh, at the schoolhouse gate. So that's important in its own right, but kind of in a somewhat You know, I'm not sure in our wildest dreams we could have hoped for a decision that was such a great victory for religious liberty. Because the court went sort of beyond that and made crystal clear that the Lemon case, uh, which is one that had really been a thorn in the side of religious adherents and lawyers who were arguing for religious liberty for 50 years, the Supreme Court said uh, that's that's been overruled. We're done with that. School districts shouldn't think that they need to suppress religious speech or religious exercise because Lemon made them do it. Oh. Um, those days are over. So the coach by sort of sticking to his guns and uh, you know at great personal sacrifice fighting all the way to the Supreme Court not only vindicated his rights but the rights of people all across the country.
1: And, and that's the larger impact of this. I want to talk more about that in just a moment but first I want people to understand that you did this case for nothing. Why was your heart in this case? Why was this so important for you to involve yourself and spend the time and effort it took to do it?
2: Well, I'd say, you know, my heart was in this for two different reasons. I mean, one is I've just always believed that religious liberty is central to the founding of this nation and is one of the most important things that any lawyer can fight for. So I've been doing cases as a first liberty volunteer attorney for a long time, and the opportunity to continue to do that is something that I really, you know, value and feel it's a privilege. Uh, But, you know, the second thing that happened along the way is I met the coach, and if if he's, you he's
1: just charming if I you, mean, if, you just- if if you've met the
2: coach <laughs> then you know why you got to fight this all the way to the supreme court and you got to make sure that that man can be with the young men that he's mentoring, that he's teaching, and he can do it in a way that's faithful to what he feels called to do.
1: And I think what, what struck a lot of reporters who got to interview him is he's not an activist who went looking to establish a case. He's a real guy who felt a real commitment to take a knee at the 50 and give thanks to God. And, and he's not a preacher's kid. This is not right. someone you know who—he's <laughs> got some rough edges, which, and he's lovable. But every time they, when the reporters read it, they're like, oh, this is not at all the guy we were expecting to talk to.
2: No, and, you know, the, the coach is just so genuine, and it really, it in, in the record in the case, just who he was came through. And who he is, is is why this case is so important, because he's not somebody who is looking for a fight. He's not somebody who is, as you say, is like a preacher's kind of you know son who's you know really just going out of his way to make a point. He's somebody who felt a very specific calling, um, and when he was told uh, on very bad legal advice that he just you know had to choose between coaching and praying, said, "No, I don't. Um, but if that's the choice, I'm gonna I'm gonna fight for my right to do both." and he is such a genuine person. It, it came through in the, in the record in the case in ways that were really helpful to us in the Supreme Court, because, you know, one of the questions that I got in the Supreme Court was, well, what if some of the students sort of feel pressure to uh, join him in his, in his prayers? And a couple of the students, in fact, went up to the coach at one point and Saw that he was praying and asked him, you know, whether they could join him. And his response, which is classic, coach, was, "It's a free country. Do what you want."
1: Which is exactly legally correct.
2: It is exactly the answer that if I were counseling <laughs> in real time, it was a little lawyer on his ear, I would have told him exactly that response. It's yeah. legally per- perfect, but it's also just it's human and right. it's who the coach is. Do what you want. This is America. It's still a free country. And but what I need to do is I need to pray. Because um, he felt called to do that, and the court uh, ultimately saw its way to saying that he could do that six to three.
1: For fifty years, young people who've been studying law, pursuing a law degree, have learned about, among other things, the Lemon Test that you you mentioned. We don't have to re-explain what it is because the Supreme Court has now declared once and for all that it's done. I mean, they kept moving that way, but now it seems like it's totally gone. What test is now in its place? I mean where do you go for how to approach this sort of case to know legally the right the right approach for it?
2: Well what the court has said is gonna replace Lemon is text history and tradition and that's gonna obviously that's not a self-defining set of phrases and that's why First Liberty is gonna stay busy for the next couple of years helping the courts develop that what that means in practice but the good news, I think, and the reason I'm so optimistic and so happy with this decision is the text of the Constitution protects religious liberty, and the traditions and history of this country are not hostile to religion. Right. I mean, you go back to the, the framing of this country, there were prayers uh, at the Constitutional Convention, uh, George Washington wrote a beautiful letter to a synagogue about how important religious liberty is, so our, our national tradition— is a tradition of religious liberty. It is not a tradition of hostility to religion. So I'm very optimistic that by reframing things, getting rid of these 1970s era tests, and replacing them with a focus on text, history, and tradition, that things are going to be looking much brighter in the future.
1: You were an important part of that. Paul Clement, thank you for your work on this case, and thank you for all the other things you do.
2: My pleasure. Of course, the court
0: also overturned a 50-year-old bad precedent with the Dobbs decision. Stewart caught up with the leader of a pro-life student organization to find out what young people are saying about it.
1: I've got my friend Kristen Hawkins here, who's been the head of Students for Life for, I don't know, a long time, what, 16 years or so? About
3: 16 years,
0: sir.
1: You've done some great work with that, and I'm so appreciative of the work that you do. Tell me, where are the kids today, if I can say it that way? What are they thinking? Where are they? Are they still reachable? Is there hope for us to reach that generation coming up?
3: They're definitely still reachable. I think that's one of the things that surprises so many folks about what we do at Students for Life, that you can still reach them, and you can still change their minds. In fact, in the wake of the row reversal, there's been a lot of articles. One of my favorite hit pieces ever done <laughs> about me and our work at Students for Life uh, was a columnist in the New York Times lamenting the fact that we outrageously Seek to have conversations with those who disagree with us.
2: Shocking. It was
3: shocking. <laughs> and I was like, yes, you have it. You have our entire strategy. Like, there you go, you've unveiled it for the whole world that mm-hmm. I try to have conversations with people who disagree with us. And that's and that's what the other side is not doing. Yeah. They simply, you know, I mean, we know with cancel culture, they just tried to shut you down. They refuse to engage. Where what we're doing on campuses, whether it's a high school or a college or you know, med or law school campus, we're intentionally seeking to have conversations conversations. conversations with those who disagree and to have that conversation and ask those questions of why Um, and to leave those even if you know you don't leave that conversation with a full-on oh my gosh you're exactly right I've been exactly wrong which we all know is rare because of human ego but to leave that conversation having Spread some kernel of truth that hopefully will take root in their brain at some point
1: There is so much of our culture right now that is tipped against having the conversation that you're talking about yeah. And it started I mean, it's not new I, I know that and we've been dealing with it for a long time But it seems like it's worse now than ever yeah. and and so many because conversations. Are
3: violence Stuart. Don't you know that?
1: Well, and that, that's what I'm talking about is yeah. that uh, the fact that you're even talking is violence against mm-hmm. me And and then you know the the epithets start rolling out I mean, we've been called every name that you can ever call somebody but it also goes to the every argument seems to go like this Uh, I'm right and you're stupid and that's it there's no conversation after that
3: yeah no I mean that's I had a lovely conversation actually on my way here to today on the plane with someone who probably doesn't agree with me on most issues. Uh, But that was her, you know, that's what she was lamenting of no one has conversations anymore with people who disagree with them. And how can how can civil society flourish if you don't have these conversations? And that's what we're seeking to do, whether it's online or whether it's on campus, is to have those conversations with those who disagree with us, those who are directly targeted by the abortion industry, um, those young people who are making up their minds before they vote for the very first time. These this is an important time in a young person's life to have this conversation with them about abortion, about when life begins, when science proves life begins.
1: And social media is not helping us at all in this era. It seems like they've tilted the tables against organizations like ours. Uh, What are you facing? What kind of things are you running into?
3: You know, we'll we'll have a a video of me on campus interacting with a student go you know, viral on TikTok, and then the next day, the entire TikTok account for Students for Life will be banned. And this has happened multiple times in the past six months, where we'll just be banned for weeks at a time. We'll lose all of our followers, and then suddenly we can log back in with zero followers and have to start all over again. And
1: and to be clear, the video you're talking about, you're not really being offensive because that's not no. what you do.
3: No, it's ha- engaging with somebody who disagrees, asking questions. Um, and pointing out the illogical position that they're taking there's no curse words there's no screaming uh, there's no graphic imagery of an abortion victim being presented at all it's simply having a conversation um, and it's it's unbelievable you know we see it you know time to time you know I, I've been locked out of my Facebook account since the ro reversal
1: welcome you're one of us now <laughs> I
3: can't I can't get in. I you know my mom keeps sending me messages I'm like stop sending me messages like my one staffer can access it in dallas but that's it so i'm
1: laughing but that's serious because it's basically A corporation saying we don't like your message, so we're going to mess with you.
3: Yeah, and so I've been thankfully I have one friend who works in Facebook, so I'm like, please, please find a programmer who will help. Um, And so you know, all the pro-life organizations faced you know attacks as soon as the rover. So our website went down for a number of hours, even with beefed-up security because we you know we anticipated uh, this decision. Um, And so this is stuff you have to just as a pro-life organization as a conservative activist, you have to be prepared for. And I think it's a good reminder of understanding what our tactics and what tools are versus our strategy, where we don't invest everything we do at Students for Life. It's not all reliant on mainstream media or social media. We can certainly use media to engage Bring new people into our fo- into our mission, starting new groups, students learning the truth about abortion. And we see that every day. Um, but that's not, you know, everything that we do. And that's why we've got hundred staff members spread out across the country, working in every state of the, of the nation, you know, pounding the pavement really, going campus to campus to find pro-life students, train up these leaders, stand with them when they face you know discrimination violence and vandalism on their campuses
1: so and you're you're hitting exactly what i want to end on and that is the what do we do how do we approach this so you've dealt with it some but let's let's unpack that just a bit more what are the strategies that will work in this environment from where you sit
3: well i think the first thing we have to remember no matter kind of where we're engaging within the conservative movement is not to be silent there is a a lot of folks who kind of want us to be quiet oh there's an election coming up let's stop talking about abortion now no you never ever see the left retreat into silence they they achieve a victory of sorts and they push harder the next day. They're, you know, they're never satisfied with, oh, we just did this one thing. It's nope, on to the next thing. And that's what we are focusing on students for life is okay, we reversed Roe versus Wade. Phase one of the pro life movement is complete. But now there's at least two more phases yeah. uh, that we must must achieve, going state by state. Strategy wise, we have to be focusing and talking about chemical abortion. More than half of all abortions were committed last year using these very dangerous drugs that lead to invert injury and death of women, not to mention the death of the child. The other strategy we we really need to be employing is we know there's a massive education gap as to the supportive services that the pro-life movement's been offering for decades. For nearly 50 years we've been starting, sustaining, supporting pregnancy resource centers, maternity homes, in communities across America. Uh, From our own work door-knocking in neighborhoods the past year and a half, 73% of neighbors that we reach at their doors do not know about pregnancy resource centers. Hmm. They all know where the Planned Parenthood is. They all know what they can get done at the Planned Parenthood, but they don't know what it is that we do. And this is, I think, a a massive call for Christians uh, and the church across America to rise up and say, we've got to come along women to ensure no woman stands alone in post-Roe America. And so those are kind of the two main things we're focusing on as we move this post-Roe generation uh, into our next phase, whether it's having these discussions on campuses about the dangers of chemical abortion or about all the resources that are really available, um, or if we're in a community or a statehouse.
1: All right. Kristen Hawkins, great chatting with you. It's good to catch up.
3: Yeah, nice to see you again, and thanks for having me here today. If you'd like to stay up to date with what's happening
0: to religious freedom in America, take a moment to subscribe to First Liberty's weekly insider email. Simply go to firstliberty.org and look for the big button that says to become an insider. It's quick, easy, and it's free. First Liberty
2: is your last line of defense and your greatest hope for victory.